class last week, so just to uh, remind you, uh, we're discussing uh, Jewish marriage, but before we get into the positive, uh, we were discussing some of the negatives, meaning who cannot get married, who has marital restrictions, and uh, the two categories you need to know about, just by quick review, is who cannot marry a Kohen, is the question. Who cannot marry a Kohen is number one, and number two is who has even a greater disability that they might not even be able to marry regular uh, Jews. Uh, the categories who cannot marry a Kohen are fairly familiar to you. A woman that has received a get cannot marry a Kohen. That's called a divorced woman. Um, a woman who converted to Judaism cannot marry a Kohen. A woman that had relations, sexual relations with a non-Jew cannot marry a Kohen. What is very important, because a lot of people don't realize this, if a woman is not a virgin but she had relations with a Jew, but she's not a divorced woman, she just had relations with a Jew, she is allowed to marry a Kohen. So the statement that you sometimes say, again, forgive me if I'm being a little indelicate, but because of halacha I have to be explicit, uh, a woman can marry a Kohen even if she's not a virgin, but she cannot marry a Kohen if she had intercourse with a guy, whether it's consensual or even, God forbid, a rape. And uh, also incest is the same thing. I mean, a woman cannot marry a Kohen if there was an incestuous intercourse, father-daughter, mother-son, brother-sister. Okay, these are the basic categories of people who cannot marry a Kohen. Now, there's one other category that's very unusual, and that is a woman whose father is a non-Jew, meaning non-Jew man lives with a Jewish woman, yeah, it's an intermarriage, a child is born, the girl is 100% Jewish because Judaism is based on the mother. Nevertheless, there is a ruling in the Talmud that she should not marry a Kohen, but this is a very, very strange ruling. This is absolutely unique, because in this ruling, there's a difference between before the fact and after the fact, meaning she's not allowed to marry a Kohen, but if she married a Kohen, she's allowed to stay married to him, which is not true for any of the other cases. Again, the, the background of this is, is very intricate, very complicated. Uh, Perhaps you'll get to it in your Gemara classes at, uh, at some point. I, I, I don't think you're learning that part. But just be aware of this halacha. This is very uh, relevant in particular. Uh, adopted children are normally, most adoptions in the Jewish community are of non-Jewish children who are then converted. And there are reasons for that. And we'll talk about that later. So keep in mind that generally speaking, a non-Jewish child that was converted uh, through an adoption, uh, cannot, if it's a girl, she cannot marry a Kohen because she is a convert and therefore cannot marry a Kohen. These are the rules regarding Kehuna, who can marry a Kohen. In terms of marrying anybody that's not a Kohen, 100% okay. Now, let me point out, again, and forgive me for repeating, that not everybody who thinks they're a Kohen is in fact a Kohen. So if you have a Shaila, about a woman who cannot marry a Kohen who wants to go out with a Kohen, then one of the issues that needs to be determined is not everybody who thinks he's a Kohen is a Kohen. 
First of all, it's very important to know that the name Kohen means nothing at all. There are many, many Kohens or Katzes. These are names traditionally connected to Kohen that you're not a Kohen. In fact, I'll give you an extreme example. You can even be a guy. Not you, but I mean, let's say, for example, a uh, Mr. Cohen the Cohen marries a non-Jewish woman, not a convert, a non-Jewish woman, and has a son whose name is Ben Cohen. Ben Cohen's father was a Cohen. Ben Cohen's name is a Cohen. Ben Cohen is not only not a Cohen, he's not even a Jew. So as a result, your name means nothing at all. But besides that, the name Cohen doesn't have to be Cohen anyway. It was often a name given by immigration when people showed up with unpronounceable Polish or Yiddish names. The Irish people at Ellis Island often put down Cohen because they figured all Jews are called Cohen, so it means nothing at all. Now, what gets a little bit tricky is the following. There are other ways you could not be a Cohen. That is the following. If a Cohen violated the prohibitions against marrying a woman that he's not supposed to marry, the child of that relationship is not a Kohen. So, for example, Kohen marries divorced woman. Forbidden. The child that they have is not a Kohen. That ends the line. Now, the good news is he could marry a divorced woman or, or whatever. Kohen marries a woman that had intercourse with a Gentile. The child he has is not a Kohen. His father was a Kohen. The child is not. Kohen marries a converted Jewess. He's a Kohen. His child is not a Kohen. The term for that technically is called halal. Halal. You may have heard halal. Halal is the Arabic term for uh, Islamic standards of kosher. It's called halal. But halal is actually a Hebrew term that means desecrated from the kahuna. He's a regular Jew, but he's not a Kohen anymore. Which means, the point I'm making is that not everybody who thinks he's a Kohen is in fact a Kohen. Because there are many, many ways kahuna can be forfeited. Now, the one thing that you cannot, when I say you, I'm talking about a Kohen. I don't mean the, the women in particular. A Kohen cannot resign his status. That's very important. Sometimes you hear this situation, you know, a Kohen is in love with this divorced woman. He says to the rabbi, can't I just resign the Kohen status? Just like uh, King Edward, right, who renounced the British monarchy, remember, this is before your, your time, before my time, to marry the woman he loved, although she kind of dumped him. She, wasn't, she was not a very good wife. Uh, but uh, he abdicated because at that time, this is before Charles and Diana. In, that, in those times in England, you, you know, a king could not uh, marry a divorced woman. Uh, and he resigned. But a Cohen does not have that option. So abdication is not an option. But sometimes you're not a Cohen either because you were born from a woman that your father was not allowed to marry. Uh, or you were born from a non-Jewish woman, so you're a guy. Or the name Cohen doesn't mean anything because you were never a Cohen to begin with. It was just an immigration name. So you have to know that whenever, I mean, I wouldn't urge a person who, let's say, knows they're not to marry a Cohen to date a Cohen and assume it'll be worked out. That's playing Russian roulette with relationships. 
Sometimes it cannot be worked out. But in some cases, a Bayston can investigate the situation and actually determine that the fellow who thought he was a Kohen is in fact not a Kohen. Yeah. Um, what about a child where the, where the mother's father is Jewish? Is um, not Jewish, so, and the father is a guy. Okay, so if father is a guy. No, no, no. father's a father's a guy. Oh, I'm sorry, say again? Father's a guy. Father's a Kohen. Mother's father is not Jewish. Paternal grandfather. Okay, 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 so very excellent. So, so excellent question. This is where the peculiar rule comes in. Since the prohibition of the Kohen marrying such a woman is only before the fact, not after the fact, so once the marriage occurs after the fact, the children will still be Kohens. That's, the, that's an exception because of that crazy rule that it only applies before and not after. That is an exception to the normal rule, and there's no halal from that type of union. Very good question. Yeah? Can a Kohen lose his status any other way that marries one? Okay, so here's, the funny, here's an important thing. I have to clarify something. The Kohen who does the sin actually does not lose his status. His child loses the status. If a Kohen marries a divorced woman, he's committed a sin. He is still a Kohen. The son that is born from that union is not a Kohen. Again, that's very, very strange. The guy that did the bad thing is actually not uh, fully penalized for that. So a Kohen that's correct, he cannot. Now, now, he may, as it were, let me put it this way, he may be suspended but not terminated, meaning the following. If a Kohen marries a divorced woman, he is still a Kohen, but we do not give him the honors of a Kohen. He is not allowed to be called up to the Torah first. Uh, he does not um, uh, do the priestly blessing. But that's a temporary thing, because if he divorces the divorcee, he is then reinstated. So he doesn't lose the kahuna, but he is deprived of honors. There is no other way he can lose the kahuna, except uh, he could stop his children from having it if they are born from a prohibited union. Yeah. Do you know what So, so here we have an interesting idea that uh, the, the Mishnah says that we're back to a certain idea that once somebody has been accepted, even Elio Hanavi is not going to investigate. Are you kosher? Are you not kosher? Now, if we know, if, if it's obvious that this child's mother was divorced, then he will not be able to serve in the base of Mikdash, meaning to say all the Kohanim will line up. They want to serve in the temple. Well, some people will be excluded. But we're not going to investigate the unknown, but whatever is known, we have to act upon. So they, okay. And what if they, like, I'm saying he's dating a non, he's married to a non-Jewish woman. They would, like, then get divorced and he could go work in the base dash? That's correct. Just, that, 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 that is correct. If he divorces the non-Jewish woman, of course, you don't need a get, because uh, it's not a marriage, but, but if he separates from the non-Jewish woman, he can get reinstated. Of course, he has to, there are some procedures, actually. He has to separate, and then he has to take a vow that he won't do it again. You know, it's a little bit, you know, we're a little strict on him. He has to swear that he will not do it again and the like. But there can be 
reinstatements. Um, okay, so again, these are general halachas to be aware of. I, I cannot say we know all of the reasons uh, for them, but uh, again, without getting into, into any invasive questioning, I'm not interested in that at all, but every person needs to make their decision and be aware, are they able to marry a Kohen? Are they not able to marry a Kohen? That's a big one. And it is a, a problem, because especially as people get, get older, because uh, as Kohanim get older and they want to marry people their age, so it'll get, you know, it gets increasingly difficult with the passage of time, and uh, this is actually called the Kohen's Dilemma. Uh, because uh, older Kohanim who are Baalei Tshuva sometimes uh, have difficulty finding suitable religious marriage partners. Yes? If a woman who was not allowed to marry a Kohan married a Kohan and they only had daughters, would there be any sort of implications for the daughters or would they just be treated uh, like normal? Yes, yes, yes. So there, there is an implication. The, the implication is that uh, the daughters cannot marry a Kohen, if you, if you can use that way. In other words, I should say two things. The male offspring of the forbidden Kohen relationship are not Kohens, and the female offspring cannot marry Kohens. So it does, does carry over that way. Yes? Yeah. Um, what if a Kohen uh, marries a non-Jewish woman and they have a son and then he converts back to Jewish? Okay, very good. So 100% uh, correct. Uh, Non-Jewish... A child of non-Jewish mother is, of course, a non-Jew, of course. The non-Jew converts, but conversion does not make you a Kohen because a convert is treated like a newly created entity, so the convert is not a Kohen. And that's why it's very important that when a Kohen adopts, a Kohen and his wife adopt a non-Jewish child, let's say, and he is converted, he does not become a Kohen. In fact, I'll tell you a little story how that can sometimes cause emotional pain which is a little unfortunate. And, uh, you know, uh, the priestly blessing, if you, if you go to synagogue in Chutz Laaretz, you know that the priestly blessing in Chutz Laaretz is only recited on holidays, on Yom Im Tovim, like Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot. But in Yerushalayim, not all of Israel, but in Yerushalayim and a lot of Israel, the blessing of the Kohanim is actually recited every single day. Again, I don't know if you have occasion to see that, but certainly if you're in Shulam Shabbos, you'll see what's called duchening. Duchening is the priestly blessing. That's recited every Shabbos, but the truth of the matter is not just on Shabbos, it's recited every single day. This is now, Svardim do it even outside of Israel every day, but Ashkenazim outside of Israel only do it on Yom Tov. Right? Even if you went to 770, you would not, you'd only see duchening on Yom Tov, but in Eretz Yisrael, or at least Yerushalayim, we do it every day. So here's an actual case I know of. It's a sad, it's a sad case. I know a Kohen who for many years did not have uh, children with his wife, so they adopted a son, a non-Jew that was converted to be Jewish. And we'll talk, about, we'll talk at length about the conversion of babies, how you do it. And then he and his wife had biological sons afterwards. So now when it's time to duchen in the davening, the father and the biological sons go up and duchen, but the adopted son cannot duchen with his brothers because although he's an adopted child, he's, he's, he's a brother, but he's not a Kohen. So this is emotionally very, very uncomfortable for the adopted son. And in Chutzlar, it would only occur a few times a year, but in Israel it occurs every single day. 
So as a result, the adopted son does not daven in the same show as his father, mm-hmm. uh, at least when his brothers are there, because it's too painful. So it, it could create some, uh, some dislocations. In fact, let me mention a particular problem Chabad has. Again, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment. Uh, you know, the Rebbe uh, generally did not get involved that much in poskening, in ruling on day-to-day halacha, meaning if, if your milchik and fleshik dishes got, got mixed up, uh, you know, you wouldn't ask the Rebbe. I mean, the Rebbe could answer, but you, the, the Rebbe did not see his role as answering kind of regular kashras problems and the like. They were rabbis and, you know, teachers in Chabad that would answer it. But one of the few, relatively few cases where the Rebbe actually issued a real halacha lemaisa, a very practical halacha ruling, was about adoption. And this was the Rebbe's position. The Rebbe, we, we know that halacha has many rules of strict separation between men and women. Very strict rules. So at least at a certain age, I'm not allowed to be alone uh, with a woman in a secluded area that's not open to the public. That's called yichud. And we know that unless it's your mother or your daughter or your wife, there's a prohibition even of what's called affectionate touching, holding hands, hugging, kissing. For sure that's us, right? That's called nigiya, right? So we have the halachas. Now, we have the halachas of yichud. Yichud is privacy, seclusion. We have the halachos of nigiya. Now, some in the very modern Orthodox world, there's an expression, <laughs> if you heard, they say, oh, I'm not shomer. Okay, that's a, an elliptical expression that says, I'm not a shomer nigiya, meaning I don't keep that one. Well, okay, uh, but you know, you're not supposed to pick and choose. But these are halachas of yichud and nigiya, and the purpose is very obvious. The purpose is to prevent uh, crossing boundaries that one is not supposed to cross. By the way, some people look at these laws and they say, oh, they're so old-fashioned, they're primitive. Well, I'll tell you the truth. You know, sexual harassment is a very, very big issue, particularly in the United States. Lawsuits are brought, and of course, the Me Too movement and all of that stuff. Now, because of this, a lot of businesses are very afraid of being sued. They're afraid of being sued because you could sue a business if, if if somebody in power sexually abuse somebody, you could sue IBM or Westinghouse or General Electric or NBC for millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they don't want to do that. So they have manuals now, employment manuals in the Fortune 500 about appropriate behaviors between genders. And if you look at these employment manuals, they sound a lot like the Shulchan Aruch. So the employment manual would say, when a man is meeting with a woman, keep the door open. You know, do not hug or kiss or engage in affectionate touching. Now, it's so interesting that these employment manuals are not doing this for morality. They're not doing it for religious reasons. They're doing it because they're scared of being sued for millions and millions of dollars. But the point that I'm making is that even the secular world understands that there needs to be appropriate boundaries between men and women, because otherwise it's so easy to cross over into the wrong place, right? That's Now that's, I mean, the Rebbe didn't make that up. That's all in the halacha. But here's what the Rebbe said. We know these halachas do not apply with mother, daughter. They do not apply with father. I'm sorry, mother, son, rather. They do not apply to father, daughter. 
brother, sister, little, basically that doesn't apply either. Some complications they'll get to. So what is the status of adoption? If, if a Jewish couple adopts a boy, can the mother hug and kiss the boy? Now, of course, when they're a baby, there's no problem. When the boy is older, is it mutter? If father uh, adopts a daughter, what's the status? So the Rebbe took the position, the Rebbe took the position that with adoption, all of the halachos of Yichud and Nagiyah apply, at least when the child is older. We're not talking about a baby. Which means, according to the Rebbe's Psak Halacha, uh, if you have uh, a, a girl that was adopted, so when she reaches age 11 or 12, whatever the age would be, father can no longer hug the girl, etc., uh, because there's not a blood relationship. In the absence of a blood relationship, the Rebbe took the position that the laws of Yichud and Negiyah apply. Now, that could be a hardship. That could be a very, very great hardship. Um, I know of a Chabad couple, yeah, again, it's difficult, which had biological children and adopted children. And the mother, all of them were boys, and the mother would show physical affection to the biological child, and the mother would not show any physical affection to the adopted child when he was above a certain age. And, okay, well, okay, I have to say that uh, the particular adopted child, I think, suffered psychologically from that differential treatment. So I myself, when I was a rabbi, I followed a, a different view. This is the view of another posek, another great posek, the Tzitz Eliezer, of Eliezer Waldenberg, who basically says that as long as you adopted the child at a young age, which is defined as younger than nine years old, the connection is that of a parent to a child. It doesn't depend on blood. It depends on the, that a normal person is not sexually attracted to the person they raised as a young child. And therefore, according to that, uh, hugging, kissing, yichud would be permitted. But again, this is a Chabad seminary, so I, I do have to tell you what the Rebbe's psak was. How you apply it in your life, I leave, I leave to you. But there are, there are different views. Now, on the other hand, I also have to say, I have to be honest with you, that the Rebbe's view is actually a majority view. It's, it's, not, it's not just the Rebbe that said it. The Rebbe said it, and indeed, most poskim follow what the Rebbe said. So it's not like an unusual only Chabad thing. On the other hand, for psychological reasons, I have always followed the Sitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Goldenberg. So I'm just giving you information. I'm not telling you at all uh, what to do, but be aware of this, uh, of this controversy. But in terms of the specific question, I know I, I wander a lot. Uh, adoption does not make a person a Kohen. Right? Uh, Kohen adopts a child. The child is not a Kohen, whether he's a Jewish adoption or a non-Jewish adoption. I'm sorry, was there a question? Yeah. So if you're going on that person, Oh, very, very nice. So now you're asking the opposite question, meaning according to the Rebbe that everything is based on biology, it turns out if he meets his mother when he's 25, his biological mother, he could kiss her because the blood connection is there. So you're asking in reverse, but if you follow Rebbe Voldenberg, who says that the heter of mother-son, da- mother, father-daughter, 
is not based on biology, but it's based on raising a child from infancy, would that turn out to be stripped if he meets his biological mother at age 25 who didn't raise, her, raise uh, him or her? Would it be forbidden? That's a very excellent question. That is entirely possible, that we would be strict at that end. The counter-argument is either factor would justify a leniency, either the raising of infancy or the biological connection. Right, so what you're raising is a very excellent question, and it shows you the interesting point in halacha, which is something that you'll notice over and over again, that sometimes a lenient position in one case may be the source of being strict in another case. It's like a seesaw. If you look at blood as the main thing, there'll be a leniency for birth mother, strictness for adopted mother. That's the Rebbe's position. If you look at raising and nurturing as the main factor, then you'll have the leniency for the adoptive mother, but maybe, perhaps, you'll have the stringency for the birth mother, unless you say either factor would be enough. Yeah. If you have a child um, like who's older, let's say 12, older, older than 12 or 13 in the foster system, yeah. and a from couple wanted to foster this child until age 18, um, then, by all opinions, this yeah. person is not related to... You're, you're right. The truth okay. of the matter is, e- even Rav Voldenberg uh, has limits, meaning to say there are, <laughs> are going to be situations where, unfortunately, the halakhic system is going to be very, very strict. And I think uh, the adoption, or not the adoption, or the placement of an older foster child mm-hmm. is going to be an example. But I would have to say this. I would say the one thing that I think... Yeah, I don't want to judge another couple... Uh, that they made a mistake is if you're going to follow the Rebbe's view or in, in your case everybody's view of no physical affection to the foster then you have to basically not show it to anybody meaning you can't you can't differentiate you just have to say okay listen we love you we don't show our affection this way etc because when you differentiate that is almost the definition of rejection to say you know I mean the whole idea of adoption is you treat you have to treat all your kids the same. The adopted child is your... Right? So it's not... And, and the Rebbe never says to have differential. I mean, the Rebbe didn't, didn't say that. The Rebbe just said, you're not allowed to do this with the adopted child. If that's the case, then you don't do it with anybody. Mm. And you just structure the relationship in a different type of way. But uh, being selective is very, very, very bad thing to do. You're saying not from a place, just from a moral place. From a moral place, meaning if you're going to be strict, then you just don't do it. You, you can't say, I'll hug you because you're my real child, but I won't hug you because you're only my adopted child. How <laughs> does that make, what does that communicate to, uh, to a child? Yeah. So in the case of the son who was adopted and the other Colin son, You know, I, I don't know the details. I think it was the son's own decision. I think the father basically wanted the son you know, to be there and feel, feel okay. Uh, but the son felt he was more comfortable. I mean, it's not, so it wasn't a rebellion. He just felt, he felt more comfortable. You know. First of all, because not everybody wants to advertise they're adopted. I mean, uh, so if this son doesn't go up, people are going to say, why don't you go up? Well, you know, he's going to have to say it. So it's, you know, things, are, uh, things are private. You know, it's interesting. Again, I'm, 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 I will get back to topic eventually, I, I promise you. You know, in the ketubah, the marriage contract, which we'll talk about, if a woman is a, con- a converted woman, it actually states, it says what her status is. 
So uh, I, I know of a case, I heard of a case, where this woman was a convert, and there's nothing to be ashamed about. If anything, there's a lot to be proud about, but many people don't want to, don't want to publicize it. So she lived in a community for many, many, many years, and no one knew what her status was. She was a regular, you know, born Jew. But she, when she got married, she had a fancy ketubah. And some people like to hang their fancy ketubah on the wall. So some guest comes over and sees a fancy ketubah on the wall and starts reading the fancy ketubah on the wall and says, hey, I didn't know you were a convert. You know. So her privacy was, was violated. But on the other hand, she hung her own well, ketubah. that's right. But most people don't know. See, most, well, that's right. That's an example where be careful what you hang up. <laughs> you know, it may not be what you want to do. Again, and I, I want to emphasize this. God forbid there is absolutely no embarrassment in this. There is no shame in this. There is only honor. Okay, I'm not saying that there's anything whatsoever to even want to conceal. But whatever it is, people can decide what they want to reveal, what they don't want to reveal. That's, that's, that's their own decision. So all I'm saying is, if you've decided for whatever reason that you don't want to reveal some information, then don't hang it on the wall where somebody might be able to figure out uh, what that information what that information is. Okay, so this is the who can marry a Cohen. Now, are there people who cannot even marry into the regular Jewish community? There's only one category, and that category is called Mamzer. Again, I am reviewing, forgive me for reviewing a little bit. Uh, Mamzer is translated, but it's not a good translation, as illegitimate child, or the older term was bastard child. <laughs> forgive the profanity. Uh, and that was called a mamzer, but that is not an accurate translation because in the English language, first of all, both of those terms are archaic anyway, but when they used to be used, uh, an illegitimate child included any child that was born out of wedlock. And it's very important to know, again, I'm repeating this, if a man and a woman have relations out of wedlock, they're not married, not supposed to do that, of course, but the child is not a mamzer. The child can marry anybody. A girl can even marry a Kohen, generally speaking, and the like. In order to be a mamzer, the child has to be born from female adultery. If a woman is Jewishly married and she lives with another man, or has intercourse with another man, the child is mamzer. Or, or, God forbid, a child born from incest. You see, here, let, let me point out the difference here. If, God forbid, there is incest between a father and a daughter, with respect to the daughter, her problem is she cannot marry a Kohen. But the offspring of the incest is much more serious in this case. They are mamzer. They cannot marry a regular Jew, they can marry a, a converted Jew, and they can marry another mamzer. Why can she not marry a Kohen? Because she had intercourse with a, uh, well, as I said, either incest or a Gentile. So incest is one of the things that, I think I mentioned that before. Oh, uh, I don't know. I think we just said, no, I said incest. I, th I think yeah. I said incest. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so again, let, let me just trace this out to be sure you, 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 get, the, you get the understanding. In the case of incest, which hopefully is 
God willing, very, very, very rare. Father is with daughter. Daughter cannot marry a Kohen. If daughter marries a Kohen, her daughters cannot marry a Kohen, and her son is no longer a Kohen. But there's no moms are there. But the child from the incest, if there is a child from the incest, is a mamzer. Now, unfortunately, uh, there are sometimes horrendous stories. There was, um, there was a horrendous, and this is years ago already, but uh, for some reason it was, people were talking about it more recently. There was a, a woman in Austria, this was non-Jewish, and she was held prisoner by, by her father in a basement for like 25 years, 25 years. And the father had seven children, seven children from his daughter. And these kids were born in the basement. No, no, no doctor, no, no, no nothing. I mean, it's, it's, it's un, it is unbelievable. But, but that would be a tragic example of, of Manzi. Yeah. Uh, so if a father had an incestuous relationship with his son, with would his there, son, yeah. yeah. Would okay. there be implications for the son, like in his life going forward? No, no, there would not. What about if a mother had with a son? Yes, that would be would a monster. That, that would be a monster. Either mother to son, or father to daughter, or brother to sister, mm-hmm. or married woman. Or, so or in, in other words, uh, so so monster is a serious problem. But let me point out that at least with respect to married women. Halacha has an amazing presumption. Halacha assumes that any child that is born during a marriage is the son of the son or the daughter of the husband. So even if the woman has an affair, and even if the kid looks like a guy that she had an affair with, halacha assumes it is from the husband, unless the husband was in prison or in China, or it was, you know, just wasn't, and there was, there was no possibility they could what have been if, together. What if they literally, the woman literally lived with another man? Say again, if what? The woman literally lived with another man for years and years. She lived with another man, but she was married or not married? She was married to, to somebody. the previous man. Yeah. And then she lives with another guy for like, I don't know, 20 years. And has in other child. words, she's no longer in the home of the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that would be, that that would would be more of a problem. But yeah. as long as she is still living with her husband, halacha creates a presumption that negates mamzer, and many people say this even works if there's a DNA test that rules out paternity. So that's an important rule to know, that in many cases we will go out of our way to remove the rule of mamzer. Yeah. So let's say you have a husband in this situation, um, that his wife has a child, and he has reason to believe that the child is a mamzer. So for the child's sake, you would say, okay, let's just say that this husband is the father. But let's say the husband is resentful, he wants to leave his wife, and he doesn't want to pay child support. You know, he gets a DNA test, he says, this is the fireman's son, Um, I'm like, I don't know, whatever. But like, this is not my son, I'm not paying child support, this is not, like, don't call him to the tour with my name. So I will tell you, I will tell you, I will tell you that it is the practice of the rabbinical courts in Israel which actually adjudicate these things, that they will not allow a DNA test to be admitted to contest a child support obligation. Meaning to say that if a child is born during a marriage, Mm -hmm. and now we're divorced, 
and I don't want to pay child support because I say it's not my kid, mm -hmm. and I want to do a DNA test to prove he's not my kid, the Bate Din in the state of Israel, I'm talking about the religious courts, will not allow a DNA test to take away a child support obligation based on this halachic presumption. It's a very interesting point. Now, some say that's not logical. I mean, DNA, after all, is supposed to be so accurate. And yet, this is how far we go not to, not to create the status of mamzer. Which means, basically, that actually means that a father will be held liable to pay money. A father, a husband, will be, or a former husband, will be liable to pay money for a kid that in all probability is not his kid because the halacha does not want to characterize him as I mean, he, he can yeah. even get a DNA test and know that the child is not his, but the court won't admit it as evidence, the court will right? Admit, well, that's a little tricky. Uh, the courts, I believe the, I believe the procedure, the court does not admit it into evidence. I know for sure they will not order the test. They will not order the test to be done. The question is, if a test was done, right. will it be admissible? I think even then it will not be admissible, but that, that I have to check on that. But the one thing I do know for sure is they will not order the test, even if the husband requests it. Uh, yeah? So we learn about how like, disgusting incest is. Yeah. And how... <laughs> for not, sure. No, maybe get yourself Lot and his daughters in the cave. Was yep. it Lot? Excellent, excellent qu case, And right? that's where Moshe yep. is coming from. Yes, yes, that's so, quite, uh, quite amazing. Uh, Lot, right, after Sodom was destroyed, so if you remember... Lot's daughters thought there was nobody left in the world. They thought they were the last, because they looked, it looks like after a nuclear war, everything is smoke. And like there's nothing, as far as the eye can see, they just see emptiness. So the older daughter got Lot drunk, had relations with him, got pregnant, and then the younger daughter the next night did the same thing. And the child of the older daughter was named Moab, which is related to from my father, and the child kind of in case somebody did, in case somebody didn't get the, the hint, and uh, the second uh, daughter had a child called Amon from my people, mildly a little less explicit, and these are the progenitors, these are the ancestors of the nations of Amon and Moab who are who are enemies for most of the time. And yet we know that Rus, Rus became a righteous convert from Moab. She's a Moabite princess. She became a righteous convert. She married Boaz, right? You know the story of Rus. And she is the great-grandmother of King David, of David HaMelech. And Moshiach is, of course, therefore descended from Rus the Moabite. So, so strange because uh, this is a product of incest. Now, there's no mamzer problem here because the incest occurred when they, were, when they were not Jewish. So technically, there's no mamzer problem, but it's still, Mashiach indirectly comes from incest. So there's a lot of deep, this is a very, very deep theme in Kabbalah and Zohar, that sometimes the greatest holiness can enter the world only in the guise of something that looks improper and sinful because without the klipa, uh, the, the sitra achra, I'm using these, uh, will not let it come in. So you have to kind of, just like we have an expression in English, a wolf in sheep's clothing 
Well, in spirituality, we sometimes have the idea of a sheep in wolf's clothing, meaning to say, in order for a certain greatness to come into the world, it must come through something that looks not exactly good. So it's very, very connected to the notion that the powers of evil themselves can be bent and utilized to bring a certain revelation into the world. And since Mashiach is all about tikkun, rectifying even the darkness and evil, consequently it has to be connected to that evil on some level. But again, this is a very complicated and difficult idea. That's why it's, this is not the only irregularity. It's not just the incest. Other things we can point to as well. Mashiach comes from Yehuda and Tamar. Yehuda cohabits with a, with a woman that he thinks is a prostitute. Right? That also doesn't look so kosher. And Boaz and Rus cohabit in the middle of the night when uh, Rus you know, shows up, etc. So throughout all of the aspects, of, and David and Bathsheba, David Bathsheba, remember David lusted after a woman, and uh, this is Bathsheba, he sees a woman bathing, and uh, he sends her husband off to be killed, and he's with her, and that is the son, Shlomo HaMelech is born from that union, and Mashiach comes from Shlomo. Mashiach really comes from like He told prophecies that, yes. that he was going to have Mashiach with her. I understand, Mashiach but the point of... Mashiach comes from Shlomo. In other words, Mashiach doesn't only come from David. Mashiach comes, right, the Rambam says... Who's a product of... David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is Shlomo's mother. Like Yehud and Tamar. Like, That's it. Yudan. Now, there's, the point I'm making is, I'm not explaining something, I'm just identifying it, that everything about Mashiach has all sorts of suspicious circumstances. The incest of Lot and his daughters... Yehuda and Tamar being with a prostitute, David being with a married woman, Bathsheba, giving birth to Shlomo. And all of this is the idea that in order to bring the holiness into the world, it has to be, the Sitra Akra has to be fooled on some level to get it under the radar. By the way, this could be expanded to all sorts of things secular Zionism. Feminism. It's, it's a complicated idea in which there are many movements that are anti-Torah. But in those movements, there are kernels of truth that have to come into the world. And therefore, it comes into a guise that's totally not kosher. But then you have to identify the kernel that is valid. right? And this is the messianic process of separating, of liberating the sparks of holiness from being imprisoned. Uh, again, a very, very complicated idea. I mean, I'm sure in, in your Hasidus you will you'll talk about this and, and learn about this, maybe in a different way than I'm presenting it. So I don't want to represent it. No, I'm not allowed to talk about Hasidus. But anyway, uh, but 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 no. But this is the uh, but this is the the basic idea. So your point that Mashiach comes from incest is a very, very valid point. It's a very, very deep point. Yeah. But he's not a. But there's not a mom's. No, there's not a mom. Yeah, yeah. Now the reason why there's not a mamzer problem is a technical reason because the incest occurred among non-Jews. Lot and his daughters were not Jewish. So as a result, there is no mamzer problem. It's just like the now, illegitimate. That's correct. And David and Bathsheba too, even though David did sleep with a, with a woman who supposedly was married, the Gemara explains that technically she was not married because when soldiers would go to war, they would give their wives a divorce 
in case, they, in case they're missing uh, in action. So technically, she was not a married woman, but spiritually, she was pledged to go back to her husband, and therefore so David David committed married. spiritual adultery, but he did what not commit. What was the ramification of that? So what, what the ramification was, it was a tremendous sin, and the first child she conceived from him died. And that's a punishment like, to her more the, than to him. No, no, he, he suffered as well. If you read in the book of Samuel, you'll see that Absalom, Absalom wanted to depose his father and even kill him. And that was a punishment for the... Seven the so there were tremendous punishments, but the well. good news is there was no mamzer involved. Wasn't also the fact that the nation split? Of that. Uh, that was later. That that could be connected. There were other reasons for that, but but you are correct. Uh, David lost ten. Not David, but King Solomon yeah. lost ten out of twelve tribes. Right? He wasn't just right. So, so it's important to understand that David did commit adultery in a in a spiritual sense, but because it was not adultery in a halachic sense, you don't have a mamzer problem. And with Lot and his daughters, although it is vadai incest, even in a halachic sense, but because they were all non-Jews, so there's no mamzer problem with non-Jews. So that's why Mashiach, God forbid, is not a mamzer. There's no mamzer issue with Mashiach, but you do have all of these suspicious origins. Yeah. If someone was born from, let's say, incest, who's not Jewish, so they're not a mamzer, and then they decide to convert to Judaism, Perfectly fine. Okay. So they're, they're... They are well, not a mamzer. That's what happened with Rus. Yeah, that's what happened with Rus. That's exactly right. Rus is exactly that situation. That's okay. right. Once you convert, anything from the past is erased. Everything is fine. So that person actually can marry, not a Kohen, because they're a convert, but, right. Anyone but that else. person can marry anybody else. 100% correct. 100% correct. Why can't a mamzer marry someone in the Jewish nation? Well... They can't. No, they convert. No, I'm sorry, why, why could a mom? Mom's mom's can oh. marry. A mamzer can marry a member of the Jewish nation who is a, who is converted. Yeah. yeah. But right. a mamzer cannot marry someone who was born really there. Which is so Children of Mamzer are still Mamzer, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, again I think I think the ultimate yeah. lesson of Mamzer, which is a sad lesson and a tragic lesson, and the Gemara even says God cries over the plight of the Mamzer. It's a difficult plight. But I think I had mentioned, I think the ultimate lesson is that sins are not victimless crimes. You know, people think, oh, I have affairs, I can do this, I can do that. You know, it's only my business. Who am I hurting? Well, God, God is teaching you that sins have consequences to innocent people. So even if you don't care about what happens to you, you know, there are children that are involved. So that's an important lesson generally in life. That when we do our veirots, we're not just affecting us. There's a whole Jewish world, a whole world, not just a Jewish world, a whole universe, not just even a world, a whole universe that we are accepting. So I think Mamzer is a very graphic illustration that sins are not victimless crimes, they really make a difference. Yeah. Um, so a Mamzer can marry a convert? Does it matter if it's the man or the woman's in moms? Either, either direction. And then their kids, either direction or also moms. Yes, yes. Now, now, if a momser married a non-Jewish woman, not a convert, a non-Jewish woman, which is forbidden, it is forbidden, but the kid would be a goy, and when he converts, he's not a momser, right? So, so only a, a male momser. It only works on a male momser. So there is a way, but it's not a permissible way, but what if someone's like willing? 
Is it what? Like, what if someone, it's kind of a twisted way of living and thinking, but like, what if someone's willing to sin so much so that their future generation... So, let me, uh, I mean, listen, listen. Uh, a sin is a sin is a sin. It's not going to be permitted, but as a practical matter, it will solve the problem for the next generation. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, not I can't. It the I can't sin, allow, like, it does not negate the sin. Right. Even be considered his Actually reminds me a little bit of a Chabad teaching. Again, it's a uh, it's it's totally this is totally off off, off not relevant, but it reminds me a little bit. You know, um, the Gemara says in Masechah Sukkah that if it rains during Sukkot, you're not supposed to eat in the Sukkah. You're supposed to leave the Sukkah. And it says anyone who stays in the Sukkah when it's raining is a simpleton, is a fool. So among many Hasidim, Chabad, but also uh, non-Chabad Hasidim, they have a thing. They don't leave the sukkah no matter what. So somebody once said to a Hasidish Rebbe, it was not the, the Rebbe, just a, another Hasidish Rebbe, you know, it says that if you stay in the sukkah when it rains, you're a simpleton. So the Rebbe said, okay, I'd rather be a simpleton and stay in the sukkah. Meaning, it's more important for me to stay in the sukkah even if I'm called an idiot. So sometimes a person makes a certain calculation that this is Except worthwhile this is just a simpleton, not like a sinister. That, that's right, there's a very big difference. There's a very big difference between being a simpleton and being a sinner. So I obviously cannot give a heter, a permission for this. But if it's done, it, it actually would solve the problem for the next generation. But it only solves it if it's a male mamzer who marries a non-Jewish woman. If it's a and female mamzer who marries a, a, a non-Jew, that doesn't do anything because the kid is Jewish and the kid is a monster. So the you don't solve it until you have a male monster. The huh? children aren't necessarily Jews. I mean, they can choose to convert, but the children can also go on if they do. Well, well. on the other hand, if they're minors... What do you mean they're see, not they, they, This gets back... I mean, if the mother is not Jewish. Yeah. Oh. No, you're right. Yeah, they're not moms there, but they're not Jewish either. On the other hand, we'll see. I, I keep on alluding to this. I, I, you know, I can convert a child as a baby without their consent. They can renounce it later. They can renounce it, yeah. yeah. But, I, but I could convert them as a baby. That's an interesting question. You know, the very first mitzvah of the Torah is a mitzvah to have children. Now, we should say a mitzvah to try to have children. Having children is not up to you, but try to have children. So the question is, if a person is a mamzer, a mamzer is a Jew, a mamzer has to daven, a mamzer has to put out, if he's a man, man has to put on tefillin, a mamzer has to keep Shabbos, right? A mamzer is a Jew. So the question is, does a mamzer have a mitzvah to have children? I mean, on one hand, it sounds a little funny to say there's a commandment to bring more mamzers into the world since the mamzer is such a difficult status. So that's a, that's a machlokas. Some opinions actually say, yeah, mamzer has a mitzvah. I, the kids will be mamzer, so what? You bring children into the world. Others say a mamzer certainly does not have such a mitzvah. So I would have to say it's really an argument among commentators. Yeah. So... Because the process of conversion, you know, takes so much time and so much effort yeah. studying, then why, or how is it that you're allowed if you adopt a non-Jewish baby, that you're allowed to convert them? Okay, let, let, me, let me talk about this a little bit, because it's already come up four times today in different matters. So let, let, me, let me take a little time about this. And again, forgive me for my digressions, but I think eventually everything does get covered. Normally speaking, when a person converts as an adult, as a grown-up, which is a girl, 12, boy, 13, etc. So what is the process? There are three things a man has to do. There are two things a woman has to do. The man has to have circumcision, a Brit, 
this is not regular circumcision. I mean, it's, it's, it's physically the same thing, but this is circumcision as part of a conversion. The man must go to a mikvah, and the man must accept in front of a court, a based-in of three rabbis, that they will keep the Torah and observe the mitzvahs according to halacha. That's very important. If you have the bris and the immersion without accepting the commandments, that's not a valid conversion. A woman has two out of the three. A woman must go to the mikvah, and a woman must accept the commandments. Right? Circumcision is not. Okay. Now, if someone does not accept the commandments, and that means to live an orthodox life, they cannot be converted. If somebody says, well, I like Judaism, but I'm going to go to work on Shabbos, we can't convert, we're not allowed to convert them because they have not accepted the mitzvahs. Now, there is a special rule based on the Gemara. Now, I'm sorry, before I get to that, how long does it, a conversion typically take? The answer is there's no way you could possibly answer this. Uh, obviously, there's not going to be a conversion until the person has enough knowledge. Now, you don't, you, don't, you don't have to be a rabbi. You don't have to know everything. But you have to have enough knowledge that you could start keeping the basic commandments as soon as you get converted. So you have to know the basics of Shabbos. You have to know the basics of Kashrus. You have to know about brachos. You have to know about the Jewish holidays. Now, do you have to know Hebrew? That's an interesting question. That actually depends on the rabbinic court. Some rabbinic courts will not convert somebody unless and until they can read Hebrew. Other rabbinic courts say, well, listen, Hebrew is a wonderful thing, but after all, the halacha says you can daven in English. You can say blessings in whatever language it is. So knowledge of Hebrew depends on the rabbis you're working with, meaning some rabbis will require it, some rabbis will not, but any Orthodox rabbi who is conscientious will require observance of Shabbos, Kashras, knowledge of the brachos, and if you're going to be married, uh, commitment to keep the laws of family purity, otherwise we can't convert. If a woman says or a man says, I cannot separate from my wife, he's married, 12 days a month, I can't do it, then we would have to tell the person, I understand your difficulty, but you're not yet ready for a conversion to halacha. Now, many people undergo conversion in stages. There are people who have a reform conversion, which we don't recognize, and then a conservative conversion, which, again, we don't recognize. But that's a way of getting them used to keeping more and more of the commandments, and then they're ready to be upgraded, so to speak, to a regular conversion. Now, all of this applies to adult conversions, and the amount of time it can take can be anywhere from one day, that can, that can be actually be done, to two or three years or longer. By the way, some rabbis will not convert a person unless they are living in a community with an Orthodox synagogue. Let's say somebody wants to convert from a place where they're the only Orthodox Jew, where they'll be the only Orthodox Jew. Some will say, well, as long as you're committed, that's fine. Others will say, without the support system, there's no way of knowing it's going to last. So they will actually condition that you have to live in a community with a Chabad house or an Orthodox synagogue or you know some type of support system. Okay, now all of that is adult conversions. 
However, the Gemara in Ketubos talks about a whole different idea of the conversion of minors. Now, a minor can be anyone from a 12-year-old boy to a one-day-old baby. You can convert a newborn baby. Now, the question becomes, obviously, a newborn baby would need circumcision, if it's a boy, would need immersion in the mikvah. Now, how do you immerse a newborn baby? That sounds scary. You take a newborn baby and throw him into the mikvah? Of course not. Of course not. What happens is, what happens is, this is typically for adoptions. This is what we typically do. What happens is that the parent goes into the water, you know, it's a bathing suit, whatever it is, holds the baby, and just lowers the baby. You know, the baby is draped across his arms. Lowers the baby, lifts him up. Now, it has to be, I'll give you a little practical uh, guidance here. Uh, the baby's head, face should be down. In other words, it should be face down. Because what's very interesting is that babies up to six months have an automatic swimming reflex. When their face hits water, they hold their breath, so no water goes into their thing. And they even have, they even do the dog paddle. If you ever, I mean, I, when a baby hits the water, first of all, it's very comfortable. If the mikvah water is warm, it reminds them of the old womb experience that they recently experienced. They instinctively hold their breath, and they start paddling away. Uh, so immersion, immersion of a young ba- of a young, very young baby is not at all traumatic. The baby enjoys it, and if the baby cries when you take him out of the mikvah water, which he will, that's only because of the change of temperature. Because the mikvah water tends to be lukewarm, and then the air is cooler than the water, so the baby is a little uncomfortable because of the cold. So actually, it's easier to take a baby to the mikvah when he's younger than six months than when he's over six months. Because once he's over six months, he doesn't have the reflex anymore, so he might swallow a little water. But it's only for a second, in depth. So there is the bris, there is the mikvah. But the question becomes, how do you fulfill the third element? The third element is accepting the commandments. A baby cannot accept commandments. So here we have, this is an important rule that Gemara lays down, the parents that are raising him are the ones who make the commitment to the rabbinical courts. Meaning to say, we will allow the conversion of a baby or a child below bar mitzvah, could be 11 year old, if the parents commit to raise the child to keep Shabbos, to keep kosher, and to give the child a Jewish education Those are kind of the three commitments that we're asking from the parents. Uh, Shabbos, Kashras. In other words, technically, we're not requiring the parents to be religious. We're requiring that the parents enable the child to be religious. And that would mean the home has to be kosher, the parents have to keep Shabbos, and the parents are committing to give the child a halachic Jewish education. And if the parents agree, and we determine they're sincere, of course we could be we could be fooled. We will allow the conversion of the minor child, and the child is now Jewish, based on that acceptance. But 
here is the here is the unusual twist, a very important thing to know. There is a difference between the conversion of an adult and the conversion of a child. The conversion of an adult is irrevocable. Once you have converted to Judaism, it's a one-way street. We let you in, we don't let you out. Even if you then convert, God forbid, to Christianity, which may have been your original religion, in the eyes of Judaism, you are a Jew. The same way, if you're born a Jew, you cannot become a member of another religion, no matter what you do. If you convert to Judaism, you cannot leave it, no matter what you do. That's an adult conversion. But, when it comes to a minor conversion, this is very interesting. Since the minor never accepted Judaism of his own accord, when the child becomes an adult, which is in the case of a boy is 13, in the case of a girl is 12, they have the right to renounce their conversion. They have the right to say, I don't want to be Jewish. And then they, remain, they become a guy. However, if they don't, so it's really, it's a little subjective. Uh, normally it would be a day of their birthday, but if they didn't find out about that until later, uh, but they have what is called a reasonable time. Now, you're going to hear people say, and this is a mistake, people will sometimes tell you a child who is converted as a minor must reconvert when he becomes an adult. Not true. You don't have to reconvert. It's the other way around. You have the right to get out of it, but if you don't get out of it, in other words, you simply stay, then you automatically remain Jewish. You don't have to go to the mikveh again. You don't have to accept the commandments again. You don't have to do anything. It's the other way around. You are Jewish by default, unless you specifically renounce within a very short time after you become an adult. Okay, that is the special rule of conversion of adults, of, of, of minors. And it is very different than the conversion of adults. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yes, did you mention? In other words, the, 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 uh, the, parents, the parents did not live up to their commitment. Yeah, that, that's a very excellent question. Generally speaking, the conversion after the fact is still a valid conversion, even if the child was not raised to live a halachic life. Then we hope, like every Jew that's not living a halachic life, that hopefully the child will come eventually to keep the commandments. So the failure to live up to their commitments will not destroy the conversion itself. Now, let me point out the following. I'll, I'll give you a second. You know, a lot of times, you know, a lot, a lot of people adopt. Uh, people who are not religious adopt, right? So, so a lot of times what an Orthodox rabbi faces is you have a couple who are conservative or reformed. They're certainly not Orthodox. They adopt a non-Jewish child, and they hear, they hear in the news, that Israel only recognizes Orthodox conversions, 
and you can't make Aliyah if you have a non-Orthodox conversion. So they want an Orthodox conversion. So they come to an Orthodox rabbi and they say, convert the child. Now you see what the problem here is. The problem is that in order for an Orthodox rabbi, actually it's not just one rabbi, it's a based in, three rabbis. In order for a Beit Din to convert a child, there has to at least be a commitment on the part of the parents that they will keep Shabbos and they will keep kosher and they will provide the child a halachic Jewish education. Now sometimes some conservative parents are willing to do that and they actually carry it out. A lot of times not. So if they're not willing to carry it out, we can't really do the conversion for them. I mean, because basically it would be a sham conversion, it would be a fake conversion. We would not be allowed to do it. So that's sometimes a source of, of tension. Uh, yeah? Um, in the case of an adult conversion, yep. if the uh, person who converted wasn't genuine and had like... Okay, excellent, excellent question. Uh, if you follow the uh, newspapers uh, in Israel, I don't know if you do or not, or even online, you will often see stories about how the Rabbanut or somebody invalidated 10,000 Russian conversions. Now, what's going on? How do you invalidate a conversion? Now, the newspapers will commonly say the conversions were invalidated because the non-Jew stopped keeping, or the non-Jew converted, stopped keeping the commandments. That is a totally inaccurate story. You need to know this. If a person validly converted and then stopped keeping the Torah or even became a Christian or became a Buddhist, they are still Jewish. A conversion cannot be taken away because a person stopped keeping the Torah. There is no such thing. Even if you stop keeping the Torah, you're like a Jew. You are a Jew who stopped keeping the Torah. You're still Jewish. But, but, here is the thing. There had to have been sincerity at the time of the conversion. So if there was a sincere commitment at the time of the conversion, even if they moved away from it, they remained Jewish. But if they were not sincere at the time of the conversion, they were converted under fraudulent misrepresentation, then the conversion can be invalidated because it never took effect to begin with. Now, you understand how tricky this is because how do you know what was in a person's mind at the time of the conversion? Let's say they convert on Monday and then the coming Shabbos they don't keep Shabbos or they eat treif. Well, maybe on Monday they were sincere and then they had a crisis. So it's a very, very difficult question. But obviously, proximity is very relevant. Meaning to say, if somebody converted and they kept Shabbos for five years and then they stopped keeping Shabbos five years later, the assumption would be they were sincere at the time and then they had a change of heart, unfortunately. If, on the other hand, they converted on Friday and they desecrated Shabbos, you know, 12 hours later, that's a pretty good indication it wasn't sincere. Now, when you have cases in between, a week later, two weeks later, that's when things are very, very problematical. But this is the issue. It's very important. Whenever you read an article about invalidating a conversion because somebody is non-observant, it does not mean because they became non-observant later. 
That is not a grounds to invalidate a conversion. It means that it was determined that there was a lack of sincerity all the way back from the beginning. How you prove that, how you show that. Again, that was a big issue with Russian conversions. Baruch Hashem, there are many, many uh, Russians who are fully, fully observant of the halacha. But there were many, many Russians who literally didn't know anything. They, they were converted en masse, and they didn't know about Shabbos, they didn't know about kosher. So unfortunately, it was determined that some of those conversions were not valid conversions. Uh, and uh, they were declared to be non-Jews. They can convert again, right? Even if your conversion is invalid, that doesn't stop you from a valid conversion, but you have to go through the process again. This is actually a very, very divisive issue in Israel because uh, you know that Russian is the, you know, there are four languages in Israel. There's, there's Hebrew, English, Arabic, Russian. Now, English is the fourth most spoken language here. Uh, the order is Hebrew, Arabic, Russian, English. So sometimes when you get directions to some government agency and they only give you three languages, English will not be one of the languages. So sometimes it'll be Hebrew, Arabic, and Russian. So Russian beats out English. So we have many, many, many Russian immigrants, but it's been determined that up to one-third of the Russian immigrants who are called Jewish might halakhically not be Jewish either the conversion was not good or their products of intermarriage with the mother being not Jewish, etc. So that is a real, real demographic problem because they are citizens of the state of Israel. And you now have, I mean, we have the same problem with Arab, but, but you now have like, sizable numbers of non-Jews who determine the political nature of the Knesset and the like. And they date and they don't reveal that. When they date, they just say, I'm Israeli, yeah. especially out of Israel. They're just, I'm Israeli, well, my parents immigrated from the Soviet Union, and it, unfortunately people find out much later that you know, they're not even Jewish. Yeah, yeah, and again, I don't want to blame the Russian, because again, in Russia, or in the Soviet Union, they were Jewish. Their passport said, Jid, uh, or whatever the, the, the Russian pronunciation is, because Russia didn't care. Russia didn't follow matrilineal sense. If your father was Jewish, you were put down as a as a Jew. So they came from an environment without Jewish education, without Jewish religion, without any background. Every single day of their life, they were reminded that they're Jewish. They come to Israel. They say they're Jewish. God forbid, this is not a matter of anyone engaging in deception. They identified themselves as Jewish. Halakhically, unfortunately, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And his fiance is Russian, and she's not halakhically Jewish. Oh, you, you know, they know that. They know that. Yeah. So they like can't get married. Like she doesn't want to go through a full conversion because they're like totally not practicing. Yeah, well, that's a big problem. And so they're like not. They can't get married. In so they have to go to Cyprus. So they're going to. Exactly, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Cyprus is our Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, it's only it's only half an hour flight. You know, very 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 near here. There's even a Chabad house in Cyprus. Uh, and uh, in the state of Israel, uh, you can, all marriages have to be, even if you're not religious, the marriages have to be halakhic. So if a Kohen wants to marry a divorced woman, 
they cannot have. Do they, they look into it? They cannot. They look into it. They cannot be halakhically married in the state of Israel. Uh, certainly, if a Jew is marrying a non-Jew or someone with an invalid conversion. So the way it works in Israel is, though, if your marriage is legal where it took place, it will be registered as a legal marriage in the state of Israel. So if, for example, so therefore, if a Kohen married a divorced woman or a, even a guy, whatever it is, uh, in America. That can be registered as a marriage. It's a schlep to go to America, so the nearest place to go uh, for what is a non-halachic civil marriage is Cyprus. So if a Kohen wants to marry a, uh, a divorced woman, or a mamzer wants to marry a regular Jewish woman, or, uh, God forbid, an intermarriage, a Jew wants to marry a guy, a guy, they can have a legal marriage in Cyprus, no, a civil marriage. And then they can come to Israel and they can have it registered as a, not a halachic marriage, but as a legally recognized marriage. But in Israel itself, there is no such thing as a legal civil marriage. If it is not religiously proper, it will not be registered as a marriage for any legal purpose in the state of Israel. Yeah. How can you say that Israel is a democracy with that? <laughs> well, Israel is a schizophrenic country because uh, Israel is described as a Jewish <laughs> democratic state. Jewish hyphen democratic democratic state. And for 60 years, or more than 60 years, people have been debating, Jewish, democratic, which one? And somebody said, the only accurate description is the hyphen. Uh, <laughs> meaning, we're grappling, I mean, I mean, again, this is not, you know, this is not just religious people grappling, I mean, if any, you know, secular grapples with, it. everybody grapples with this schizophrenic idea, that on one hand, in many, many ways, even if you're not religious, this is a secular state, a, a religious state. Uh, the buses in Yerushalayim do not run on Shabbos. In Haifa, they do run. How come? How come the buses run in Haifa, not in Jerusalem? Who decided that? You know who decided that? 1948, when the State of Israel was founded, and Ben-Gurion had to make a deal with various religious parties to get a majority in the Knesset, they invented something called the status quo agreement, meaning whatever was in 1948 remains. Jerusalem? because of its religious population, didn't have buses in 1948, so there are no buses in 2019. Haifa, which had a largely more of a secular population, had, meaning it was frozen. Whatever was in 1948. That's why, until recently, yeshiva students were exempt from the army. Why? Because Ben-Gurion said, oh, in 1948, there was only 300 yeshiva students. Ah, let them, let them be exempt. They're going to die out anyway. So he said, status quo. Well, that continues when you have hundreds of thousands, etc. Status quo. So, Israel is grappling. Israel has a real identity crisis. You know, yeah. we are a Jewish state. Uh, marriage and divorce are governed by halacha, even for secular Jews. So it does but people, but people, people are arguing over this. I mean, I, I don't want to get into the politics. There are those that say there ought to be separation of church and state, so to speak, in Israel, in which let religious people have religion and let secular people have secular things. Don't impose religion on secular people. People are debating that.
Yeah, uh, yeah. So if there's no secular, it's a twofold question. If there's no secular um, marriage or divorce in Israel. Yeah, no civil yeah. marriage. Are there, are there, are there still like legal and monetary financial? No, are there what benefits? you call domestic domestic partnership? Yeah. I believe not. I believe not. Uh, not yet, at least. Certainly, let me point out there is no gay marriage in Israel for obvious reasons. Uh, gay marriage is anti-halacha. So, on the other hand, the, the controversy that Israel is facing is. Will Cyprus work for that? I don't know about Cyprus, but let's say let's say somebody goes to the United States, two men, two women, and they get a legal same-sex marriage. Now, I had already told you that the state of Israel will register as a legal marriage an anti-halachic marriage that was done in another country, like a Kohen marries a divorced woman. Will they register same sex marriage based on the same idea that it was legal in Cyprus or New York or wherever, wherever it was. So that's an open controversy. Right now, the courts in Israel are going crazy over that. As you would imagine, the religious parties are up in arms. And so that's kind of an unresolved issue. And the second question to that is, the, what about like, Arabs and Israelis? They're not Jewish, they're Muslim. Do they have, are their marriages recognized by the state of Israel? So this is interesting, this is interesting. All marriage and divorce must be conducted according to the religion of the person getting married, which which actually means that uh, Arab marriages must be valid under Sharia law. And Christian marriages must be valid under the denomination of Christianity. So religion is not just Jewish. Religion okay. permeates every aspect when of marriage and divorce. When was that like all marriages and divorces have to be Because like that's a lot of power that the religious, like obviously religious people yeah. instituted that. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, really, it it did exist uh, really uh, all the way back under the Ottoman Empire, uh, but in 1948, the religious parties demanded that as a condition of their participation in the Knesset, meaning Ben-Gurion, like today, could not have a coalition without uh, the religious party's participation, and they made these things as conditions. That's how things get done in Israel. Basically, religious parties typically have around six to ten seats in the Knesset. Now, in order to form a government, we just had an election, you have to have, uh, what, you have to have uh, 61 seats. But nobody ever gets 61 seats. You get 40. I I believe not. It's never never happened. Everything depends on forming coalitions with different people. So because of this, religious parties have a lot of influence, even though it's only 10 seats. Like every, almost every coalition, although some coalitions refuse to participate with religious parties, but most coalitions need religious parties. And that allows religious parties to make certain conditions. Now, you could say that's good, you could say that's bad, you could say it's an abuse of religion. You know, I could could talk about that a long time. I don't want to get into that. But that is how Ben-Gurion, who was not at all religious, agreed to a lot of these things. So a lot of these things do date from 1948, and they remain to this very day. Yeah. Um, I have a question going back to the child who is converted as a baby, um, and then at like age, let's say for a girl at age 12, let's say she says, you know what, I'm not interested. And so from her bat mitzvah age onwards, she's not a Jewish person. That's correct. 
if she had like I know this is kind of a crazy weird situation but like as a thought exercise if she had conceived a child when she was like 11 would that child be Jewish yeah yeah no that's an excellent question I mean your question fundamentally your question fundamentally is that when the person renounces their conversion yeah does that only make them a guy from now on right or does that actually mean they never were Jewish to begin with Another example, right. besides your example, which is a very good example, would be if they touched wine. Right? If a non-Jew touches wine, the wine is trafe, right? So okay. uh, if they handled wine and then the next day they renounced their conversion, does the wine they touch become trafe? You know? Okay. It's the, same, it's the same question. So there, the logic of it would indicate that she was never Jewish and the child would, would be born, the child that she has would be a guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, some say it's only a prospective annulment. Not what a about like Wait, the wine? And the wine would be trafe according to Wait, that. But you said... So the halacha is like this. They're allowed to drink it because they don't have to assume she'll renounce. <laughs> but, if they are, but if they drank it, it turns out they committed a sin retroactively. Wait, but if the default is that she's Jewish, the default is being Jewish unless if, you renounce that. That's correct. No, so I understand. But the question is, but if she renounces, does, does that annul the conversion retroactively? Yeah, the default is Jewish uh, unless you, you would renounce. You think it wouldn't? Well, the argument is this. The argument is that logically it should go retroactively because the parents are able to accept for the child on the supposition that the child will acquiesce. If the child doesn't acquiesce, then it turns out the parents' acceptance was never was never a valid acceptance. Well, yeah. Or like if, also weird, but like if a girl slept with a boy when he was 12, and then he said he's not, then he decided could, he's not could Jewish. Could she marry a Cohen? Now she can't marry a Cohen, <laughs> even right. though it was like That's a boy right. from her Jewish middle That's school? Right. That would be the same question. Well, you know, that... It's not. Right. It's not I'm so saying, great. It's not so great either way. I happens, hope it's but, not uh, a practical <laughs> situation. But I'm saying, let's say when they're twelve. Yes, yeah, again. A boy and a girl from like Jewish middle school. I'm more suspicious. You're saying a twelve-year-old. Yeah. You. I mean, I remember once in some classes you said if someone's like twenty years old and they found out that they. That's when they found out. Yeah, you're correct. You're so correct. I'm saying, so your parents can be totally normal and eighteen-year-old. That, that's correct. Who never knew she yeah. was adopted and never knew she was. Jewish. I mean, she knew she was Jewish. Right. She was adopted and converted. Yeah. She found out this new Hanukkah and decides, I don't actually want this Judaism, but she has a child now at 18 years old. Yeah, yeah that's a very good point. Do you understand your point? Your point is yeah. that the rule that you can only, a minor can renounce only very shortly after their bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah is only if they were aware that they had undergone a conversion as a child. If they didn't find out until many years later, they could renounce it then. So, so consequently, your case could even be somebody married, married Jewish, uh, and then found out and then renounced, and then that could affect uh, that could affect their grandchildren. They could be a grandparent <laughs> and renounce. So then their whole lineage isn't Jewish. That's well, correct. Don't renounce it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have two questions. One, if a Adopt a non-Jewish person and a non-Jewish kid, like baby. Yeah. You convert them, and then they don't really keep um, laws. They just want them to convert the kid because they were Jewish, and then by twelve, the kid doesn't like like knows that they're Jewish, so they they I mean like takes it on like at the bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, but still then afterwards don't keep it. Yes, excellent, excellent, excellent question. What is called renouncing? What if somebody is not observant? 
but they want to be Jewish. So the poskim say that renunciation does not mean I don't keep the Torah. Renunciation means I literally don't want to be Jewish, and that's pretty rare. Meaning, even if the teenager is totally non-observant, again. I know two. I know a family that who didn't want to be Jewish. They're all three boys were converted as babies, and yeah. the oldest one is a Jew, and the younger two. I think the youngest one just became thirteen. Like the younger two are not Jewish. So, but you understand that, that that's pretty extreme. Meaning to say, you can have a lot of teenagers who don't want to, who don't want to be observant, but they're so proud of being a Jew. They'll wear a Magain David, whatever it is, they'll go on a birthright trip to Israel. So that's not renunciation. There, they're still Jewish. But if somebody literally says, as when they find out that they were converted, I don't want to be part of the Jewish people. I knew a person like that. In fact, his parents, uh, they came to me. He was adopted. Uh, no, actually, it wasn't. What happened was he was, he, his mother was a non-Jew, and then he was converted as a baby with the mother. So it wasn't an adoption, but, but there was a conversion. Mm-hmm. And he became, he became very observant, but then one day he just decides to renounce his conversions. And the parents didn't understand it at all. They said, you know, they wanted to really meet with the son. Is, is our son crazy? I mean, they didn't understand. What's to say? You don't want to be Jewish. And the son had a religious cheshbon. His reason was, a Jew is responsible for so many mitzvahs, and he could get them wrong, and Hashem is going to hold them accountable. I would rather be a non-Jew and only have the seven commandments of Noah that I'll be able to keep. So he declared he didn't want to be Jewish uh, in order to avoid the obligations of the Torah. But what happened was, later, a few years later, as an adult, he converted to full Judaism and he got married, and he says he lives in Israel, he lives in Yerushalayim. <laughs> so, so people can undergo all of these different changes and transitions. But I also, I also know another family where um, the mother was a non-Jew, and she converted with all of her minor children, and some of the children renounced, and they're non-Jews, and some of them stayed Jewish. Yeah. Um, when you renounce the Judaism, like... Is there any act of that, or they just say, like, I'm done? Is there any, like, Yes, so presumably it it should be done in front of a base, some type of base that you make a formal statement. That's intense. I do not want to be Jewish anymore. That would be sufficient. Okay, Okay. uh, yeah. If a woman denounces her Judaism, but she's pregnant, or she she converts while she's pregnant. But she was converted as a minor, or? No, 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 as an adult. Oh, yes. Then is the child like? When does the child become Jewish? Oh, that's an excellent question. That, yeah, yeah. So that's that's very good. We discussed two out of three possibilities. We discussed conversion of adult. We discussed conversion of minors. What about conversion of fetuses? Meaning to say, what is the status when a woman converts to Judaism while she is pregnant? So that's a very, very interesting machlokas. Uh, some treat that as conversion of two people. Mother converts and baby converts. And as a result, on the baby, you apply the baby rules, which will give the child the right to renounce. Others look at it in a different way. They say, as long as the fetus is growing inside of the mother, you look at the fetus as part of the mother. 
And therefore, it's not the fetus that's converting, it's only the mother that's converting. It is therefore an adult conversion, and as an adult conversion, there is no renunciation. But, but like, with that mindset and other halachic situations, would the baby still be considered? Well, let, 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 me, let, me give, let me give you an example. Uh, if a girl is born, can that person marry a Kohen? If you looked at it as a fetal conversion, the daughter could not marry a Kohen. If you look at it as only the mother converted and the child was born Jewish from a Jewish mother, the daughter could marry. But you're correct. The issue of is the fetus part of the mother seemingly could have relevance on many, many issues such as abortion. And like, yes, yes, it is relevant. We'll, we'll so like, I'm saying if like in the conversion situation, if you go that is part of the mother, yeah. like do you have to be consistent in it? Consistent with that in all situations? Or no, is it just a uh, it's, it's very tricky. Why not? I mean, logic, logically, obviously, you should be consistent. But if you're asking me, can we find halakhic consistency across the board, the answer is no. And for various reasons, different situations are treated differently. And it's not just resolved by reference to that single single idea. What if she, yeah. sorry, what if she denounces her Judaism? Like, she can't. No. Are you talking about the, talking the mother? The mother? The mother How can the mother? No. As in if she, she can only re- adopted and converted as a child. Oh, she was converted oh. as a child. Oh, and yeah. then finds out that she can denounce her Judaism, but she's pregnant. So what's the size Oh, she's of the pregnant baby? then. No, so there, I, I, I think what happens is that uh, once she oh, renounces, the fetus yeah, is going to be a, a non-Jew. Anyway, I think uh, we'll tricky. stop here. I want to wish you all a Shanata Ramatuka, a good and sweet year. And may all of us and all of Kali Israel be inscribed in the in the Book of Life. Amen. So uh, next Sunday, no class. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. This is so interesting. Maya, the question I asked was if a boy, like weird situation, if a Jew.